been in our wisdom series. And this week is the final week where we're pulling out a new book to discuss with you. And in this series, then we've gone through Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and now today we get to tackle Song of Songs. In Hebrew, the word for this book is Shir Hasharim, which literally means Song of Songs. Some of us might know this book by the name Song of Solomon, in case you've heard that title before too, which comes from the first line. So the first line in the book is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And this simply means the Song of Songs is kind of like a Hebrew idiom, like King of Kings, Lord of Lords all of those things, holy of holies, those different aspects. So it really is like, of all songs considered, this is the song of all songs. Now, additionally, we would say that it is not likely written by Solomon. And it probably means in that first line, instead of like by Solomon, the song of songs by Solomon, you might read it like of the wisdom genre of Solomon. And we will take a look as to why we likely think that it was not written by Solomon, at least not entirely. Um, There's probably some good linguistic indications that it was written after the time of Solomon. But also, as we'll see, this book celebrates a faithful love between two persons. And we know that Solomon did not have a faithful love with a single person and instead Um, multiplied his efforts in a variety of directions, north, south, east, and west, okay? So it's not likely then that Solomon would be the one to be like, let's just talk about this incredible, like, covenantal, deep, manifested love that we have between these two individual persons because um, Solomon didn't do that. So um, it would have been fiction for Solomon to write this book had he written it. Now, as we jump on in, this book has a parental advisory on it. So I'm going to do my best to um, skim over the surface. And for those of you who have the capacity to read on multiple levels, we'll read into very clearly the multiple levels that are being presented. Um, And you might find yourself occasionally blushing a bit at the content that is provided. Um, For example, when we read this book, we might run across things like, as an apple tree, as an apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved. This is a woman speaking among young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Um, and he brought me to the banqueting house, and his intention toward me was love. Now, you can read that as just beautiful sort of Edenic garden analogy, and that's lovely. But I think if you're starting to go does she know that that could possibly mean what it means? Then I'm going to say, yes, I'm well aware. Um, And so is the writer or writers of this book. As a result, this book has been debated to be included in our canon since pretty nearly the beginning of its writings. There has been significant debate. Does it belong in our Bible. Uh, Like the book of Esther, it does not have the name of God appearing in this story, although there are definite scriptural allusions that we'll touch on. And the reason why it was debated is because the book is sexy and hot. 
Okay, so it's just like that's what's happening. And so early on, the rabbis also debated it. And apparently, it was known to be a drinking. Some of the verses were known to be drinking songs in the pubs of the first and of the second temple period. Um, And so the Talmud records that anyone who trills his voice in the singing of the Song of Songs in the banquet house or treats it as some kind of tune has no part in the world to come because you have sung the sexy song in the pub. So this can't obviously be scriptural text. But Rabbi Akiva was like, no, no, this song, heaven forbid, no Jew, he says, no Jew, this is not true, ever questioned the sanctity of the Song of Songs, like we just read like shortly before that a lot of people did. Um, For all the world is not worth the day when the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the writings are holy, but the Song of Songs, Shir Hashirim, is the holy of holies. It is the place where God ushers us in to the presence and the understanding of God's love. And that indeed has been the traditional view of this book and why it belongs in our canon, that it's actually not a story about two lovers who really have the hots for each other, but in fact, it is a story about God's deep, intimate love for God's people. And so, yes, the Song of Songs can be seen as allegory. And if you haven't seen this movie, it's, um, it's actually the Shakespearean play, Much Ado About Nothing. And this is the Kenneth Branagh version. It's fantastic because there's this really wonderful scene. And then he's like reflecting. I was like, there's a double meaning in that. And that is true of the entire book of the Song of Songs. Every line you're like, there's a double meaning in that. And I really think that the authors, likely plural, of this book, or maybe a singular author, uh, a woman, um, they know what they're saying and they want and expect you to know what they're saying. So initially, Charles Spurgeon and others, the Christian interpretation, including Origen back in the third century, he just wrote commentary and commentary about the Song of Songs, about how it was like deep and mysterious and it's really about God and God's people or, or Jesus and the church. And he said this, it's a book of deep mystery, not to be understood by the uninitiated. By the, right? So it's like, except by the initiated. This book stands like the tree of life in the midst of the garden and no one will ever be able to pluck its fruit and eat of it until he's been brought by Christ past the sword of the cherubim and led to rejoice in the love that has delivered him from death. And I would like to say to Charles Spurgeon, um, it's, a, it's sexy, So, like, I don't think it's going to be that hard for a lot of people to understand. And the reason why he perceives it to be very difficult for you to understand its deep allegorical meaning is because on the surface, it's just a really sexy book. So you have to, like, have somebody tell you from the beginning. As I was told as a little kid, anybody grew up in the church and be like, I remember coming to this book and we went, what is this about? Like, it's about Jesus in the church. Like it was like a real quick jump to it is about, it's about a garden and, and it's about fruit and Jesus in the church. Like, I never got anything more than that traditional interpretation that the book is a love song between Israel and God. It's a love song between the church and Christ. And it's a reflection on the divine gift of love. In fact, it is so much um, into the traditional view that this is the love song that Israel, I'm uh, sorry, uh, observant Jews today will read the Song of Songs on Passover. On the night when Israel is pulled out of Egypt and they remember the event of being brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, it's the love song between God and God's people. It's when they're being brought out of Egypt into the land. And in that beautiful way, then, they are remembering that this song is about God and God's people. And I think that that's okay. And that's true. 
So the song captures that ecstatic aspect of love that is the main theme of the whole Bible. Yes, and if the Song of Songs is about the love between God and Israel and has nothing to do with sexual love, then that interpretation leaves a gaping hole in the canon. We kind of need both. Most modern scholars, biblical scholars today, will say that traditional view that sort of tried to justify the inclusion of this sexy book into our canon and say, well, it's actually just an allegory about God and God's love for God's people is nonsense. A lot of biblical scholars will tell you that. Maybe not like the conservative ones at the Evangelical Theological Seminary Conference, but the ones at the Society of Biblical Literature Conference, those heathens, they'll tell you that it is really just about this incredibly intense relationship between these two people. I think we want to employ the yes and improvisational technique, right? Yes, it is about a deep love between two individuals, and we can see in this book some real beautiful allegory for how God loves us. And I would, I would also suggest a little bit of a glimpse into what God is doing in the world around us. So let's dig in. Because years ago as a youth pastor— I had some very girl crazy boys in high school, uh, boy crazy girls, that's what I would say, I some boy crazy girls in high school who just could not, they couldn't get enough of whoever was the latest and the greatest, like big man on campus, and there was just a lot of, you know, you're a youth pastor, this is the talk that happens all the time. And I remember saying to them, do you know what you're worth, and what kind of language is this person using in your life in order to woo you over? And they were like, well, like he said he liked my jeans. I'm like, boo, right? So they're like, or he gave me a Hallmark card. I'm like, boo, let's try again. So I orchestrated around Valentine's Day a very special girls-only hang at my house. And we had sparkling cider, and I made him like, you know, I think they, they thought it was fancy. It was probably chicken with like dressing, marinating some sort of salad dressing. Um, and so like some sides. And we read this book then. And we sat down and we read, yeah, with high school students, high school girls. We said that we read this book. And as we read it through, they were like, what? And I was like, right, I know. And then at the end, one of the girls was like, forget Hallmark. Like, I want this. I was like, right. You do want this. So let's take a closer look at this text. Let's re-examine it and look a little bit further into it. Just like we did a few weeks ago when we talked about Proverbs 31 and the Proverbs 31 wife uh, or the Eshet Chayel, we sort of said, when we talk about these passages in the Bible, we have a lot of traditional packaging that we put it in. And I tried to let you know that we can kind of set that aside and actually look directly to the text rather than just look at the packaging that we've made comfortable. We've sort of made ourselves comfortable with the text. We talked then about how do we translate woman of vile, valor, woman of valor, Eshazchayel. And we said, how do we render a term that's normally appearing in a male military context when it shows up in the arena of female domestic life? And we said, a woman of valor, an Eshazchayel. We were like, let's not even translate it. As we look now at the Song of Songs, I'm going to ask us to do the same thing that we did a little bit and just hold in your mind, if you were here and if you weren't here, you can go back and listen to it. The idea that God is pushing the envelope a bit in our conversations about how women are treated and how women are able and empowered to operate. And this would be, I would suggest, a biblical def definition of womanhood. 
Our concept of romantic love, often in our culture and society, has this damsel in distress sort of motif. Yes? Um, like everybody, like it's the woman in the castle that she's stuck, and then the knight slays the dragon and brings her over, you know, sets her free, all of those kinds of things. But in the book, The Song of Songs, the woman takes the lead. From the very first words, the woman is the one who's going to drive the power of this book. In the book, Song of Songs, the woman will speak first, she will speak last. She will speak most often, 78% of the time in the book, if this woman is speaking. And no other woman in all of scripture speaks with such confidence, delighting in her own beauty, and boldly asking and pursuing what she wants. You guys, we've been told a lie when we are told that this book is not just ascribed to the wisdom of Solomon, but written by Solomon. This book, I want to argue, is at least 78% written from the point of view of a woman. And we should contend with how beautiful it is to have in our canon, where oftentimes people try to take these ancient Near Eastern texts and take our biblical texts and say, see, it's patriarchal or it's misogynistic. And I'm not denying that there are things that we deeply need to wrestle with and that are difficult within our story. But we should at least also celebrate the times when the woman takes center stage. And that's this book. So here we go in chapter one, verse one, the song of songs, which is Solomon's or attributed to Solomon. And then the woman starts, let's, she's like, we can do this. Let me kiss him with the kisses of his mouth. That's the first line. Like this is like the title page and you open up and she's like, let me kiss that guy. That's how it starts. It's quite beautiful poetry. And she persists on, let me kiss Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is perfume poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And then she continues and she says things like, I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. And as she persists, she says, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock. Her lover is a shepherd. Where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who is veiled beside the flocks of your companions? So the woman speaks first and enters into this first beautiful poem and song that's all about how she cannot wait to kiss this guy and how this, everybody wants him, but she's going to get to have him. And it's amazing. And then the man speaks. And as the man jumps in and starts to speak, he says this, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. This is what you've always wanted somebody to say to you across dinner, right? Like David, say, you know what you're like? You're like a horse. You're like, I don't know how to take that. So let me help you out. Pharaoh's chariots were drawn by stallions, not female horses, but male horses, right? And once when Pharaoh was at war with the prince of Kadesh, the enemy drove a mare into, in, that was in heat into the midst of the horses. So this compliment is akin to your, you drive strong males wild. Nice, right? So basically I compare you to a mare in heat driving the enemy wild. 
So he continues, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are comely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you ornaments of gold studded with silver. How beautiful you are, my love. How very beautiful. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them is bereaved. You're not missing any of your teeth, and they look like sheep. Your lips are like a crimson thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in courses. On it hang a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. So really, he takes some time to describe her a bit like this. Okay? So a Tower of David... um, Her two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Um, Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And gives all, like your navel is like a round goblet and your belly is a heap of wheat. I'm not into that, by the way. So if Kevin tells me later on, your belly is like a heap of wheat, I'm going to have some trouble. We're going to have some serious conversation. But this beautiful description that he provides as he continues on. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will hasten to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. I don't think those are locations. I think there are descriptors of a, the person, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And as the man and the woman describe one another and their love for one another in these descriptive tones, they use very interesting compliments that might sound awkward in our day, right? Your temples are like a pomegranate, your hair like royal tapestry, your nose is like a tower. Like immediately people are like, well, if my nose is like a tower, I'm making an appointment with a specialist. I'm going to go someplace else, right? Um, So continues on, like your feet are bases of pure gold, she says of the man. His eyes are like lips like lilies, cheeks like beds of spice, arms are rods of gold, body like polished ivory. And overall, the man is described like the land of Lebanon. And overall appearance, she is described like as one of Pharaoh's horses. And this garden imagery, land imagery, um, is used throughout the entire text. And it's not so much to describe a physical aspect. You'll notice immediately that nobody's actually said, your eyes are this color. How would you normally typically describe, right? Like the ways in which you would describe somebody that you're looking for. You would say, okay, they're about this tall. They're about this, like they do this. They have this color hair, this color. None of that is described. Instead, the people here are described with the beautiful benefits of the land that they are living in and looking around and seeing that is good. That land of milk and honey, stretching up to Lebanon, up to Mount Hermon, down through the Jordan River and headwaters, this beautiful, vibrant land. So when he says to her, your parts of your body parts are like a pomegranate. Have you ever opened up a pomegranate? How many seeds are in there? So many, right? The rabbis actually a big discussion about it. They said there's one seed for every number of command that's actually in the space. So all these seeds that are in this place, in this pomegranate. So the pomegranate is a symbol of fertility. And it's also one of the promised seven species as God tells Israel to go into the land in Deuteronomy chapter eight, God says there'll be seven species or varieties of fruits that will be there. Wheat, barley, olive, fig, grape, hold on, and uh, pomegranate. And what am I missing? Why am I missing it? Seven, wheat, barley, pomegranate, 
fig, olive. Help me. This is going to drive me crazy. We're not going to be able to go. I'm going to have to read it. Okay, here we go. No, seriously, right? Right? Deuteronomy 8. Fig, pomegranate, palm tree. Okay, that's the one I'm forgetting. Okay, palm tree. All of those seven species, they all appear in this book, Song of Songs. And now I'm wearing today this beautiful pomegranate that my husband gave me. And I really wanted one. It's so beautiful. A song of songs. And I have one of the lines on this ring that he gave me. It says, Anila Dodi Vadodi Li. I am my beloved's. So my beloved's is mine. This kind of beautiful, rich story is still pulled into the fabric of the land today, where we kind of look around and, and hang out. And I was meeting with a wonderful archaeologist, Yossi Garfinkel. He's incredible. He's done some fantastic digs. And we were meeting there. I was listening to him dig. And I was wearing this pomegranate. And he looks at me and goes, you know you're wearing a fertility symbol around your neck, right? And I'm like, yes, I'm aware. And he's like, okay, I was checking. So, you know, I, I think what we forget is that when these things are described, they have actual meaning as opposed to just like, I guess she had really round cheeks, right? It's instead, it's like you are fertile. The fig tree is a symbol of leadership. Wheat and barley for like being able, plentiful. The date palm, the it's Tamar. The palm tree is like a, a picture of righteousness. Do you remember Tamar was Judah's daughter and she was more righteous than him? And that word just for date palm. All of these different images in our text in our Bible, like a, a fruitful vine around the table was this beautiful picture for um, for God's continued blessing on the land. So all of these things come into play. It's like that they're saying that everything that we need, that picture of everyone sitting under their own vine and fig tree and having shalom is present in this relationship that we are in together. And we are safe. Your neck is like the Tower of David. So this woman, again, is just like that Eshet Chayel verse from Proverbs 31, where she's this sort of woman of valor, which is used for David's mighty men of valor. She's being compared to, again, strong battle imagery, strength, able to hold her own in this space. Now, this book continues to get incredibly romantic. And here's the part that everybody loves to read at all of the weddings, right? Many waters cannot quench love. Song of Songs, chapter 8. First, ask this question. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? The rabbis early on said, oh, this is Israel coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved. God brought them out of the wilderness. God is their beloved. They had this beautiful covenantal marriage kind of ceremony at Sinai between God and Israel. And now they're coming up out of the wilderness, the desert being that beautiful place where the story is told as well. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? Under the apple tree, I awakened you. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame. You can hear this passionate intimacy and connection between these two lovers. And as you know, fire can burn. And we have all seen, maybe in our own lives, maybe in the lives of people that we love around us, that when the relationship is good, just like a fire in a fireplace, it can heat the, heat the home and warm you and be beautiful and aglow. But if that fire burns outside of that fireplace, it can burn your house down. 
This is powerful. It can't be quenched. It's overwhelming what they're experiencing. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If one offered for love all the wealth of one's house, it would be utterly scorned. This is how we also know Solomon didn't write this, by the way. Because Solomon was always sort of entering into lots of different deals for the sake of the kingdom and treaties. And one of Pharaoh's daughters was one of his wives. Like all of that was is probably a lot more about security um, and trade than it was about love. Here, this person says, you can't give any money for love. For what we have together is so incredibly powerful and intimate and special So here we have in this story, a woman and a man facing one another, standing on equal ground, speaking openly about one another's beauty and power. And this human relationship is enjoyed in full mutuality and equality of status. And this is not known in the ancient Near Eastern world. This is the only place in the Bible where love between a woman and a man is upheld without regard for childbearing or other utilitarian benefits of marriage. We all know very clearly, right? This was a time when you didn't marry for love. You married because you were property. You married for the sake of being able to procreate. But you, most women didn't even have a say in who they wanted to marry, right? So this relationship and just the idea of equality. You guys understand? This was written a long time ago, right? It's not like... The suffrage movement happened, and then somebody wrote this. This is amazing that this exists in our canon. Now, this woman continues, and she talks about this in Song of Songs 3, and I think this is where we might start to hear these hints of how it is finding its place, this beautiful place in the allegories of Scripture as well. She says this, Upon my bed at night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The sentinels found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves, and I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. That would be awkward for me, but that's what she says. Now, this woman, as she's saying this, she's actually referencing a passage that we just had all the kids get up and say. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your might, and love your neighbors yourself. This, this, this woman, this, this term, this seeking, is a technical term, also found in Exodus 33, 7, where Moses uses the tent, pitches it outside the camp far off, calls it the tent of meeting, and everyone who seeks the Lord, who sought the Lord, this technical term of going to God and finding worship, would go out, and then whenever Moses went out, and then they would find God, right? So she's saying, I am seeking the one whom my soul loves. And here we have this echo then from Deuteronomy chapter four and Deuteronomy chapter six and sort of all over the text of like, will, where God is saying to Israel, will you love me? Right. And then we are encouraged to continue to seek the one whom our soul loves. And this is where we can say yes. And yes, it's a very sexy book about two lovers who love each other. And it's beautiful that it's there. 
And if you have a partner in your life that you are deeply intimate with, I just highly recommend that you just sit down and take turns reading the different voices of the book and have some fun. Yes, and this book is also about pursuing that beautiful love, human intimacy, as well as divine. This song enables us to feel what it's like to seek God with a whole soul. And it reminds us that God is, God is not, after all, an easy catch. Weren't there times in your life and in mine, in our spiritual experiences, where we have felt closer to the divine, closer to God, and then other times when we felt so, so far away, we've wondered if we were hallucinating an experience, right? This is what this woman's talking about. Like she, whether it is her human lover that she has in this poem or the divine love that she's looking for, it's like, I have sought it and it's sort of just outside my grasp, but I won't give up. But then once she finds her lover, right? Once she finds this love, she grabs it and will not let go. Our souls were made to delight in God's being and God's being with us. Rabbi Avraham Yitzhak Kuk taught that all the rich imagery of the Song of Songs exists precisely for the sake of making vividly real this rare love that does not derive from material benefits. Is it okay to love God, to long for intimacy with God simply because of who God is, not because of what God has done or will do for us? You remember the woman who anoints Jesus's feet with oil? She does that before he dies on the cross. She does it just because of who he is and how she loves him and how he has loved her. She doesn't do it because of what he will do for her. I love Jesus because he saved me from all my sins. That is transactional. Or do we love God no matter what? And this woman loves just because of who her lover is. Not because of anything that her lover has done for her. And if we grab that language from Deuteronomy, from all of the Edenic imagery, from that technical term of coming before God in Exodus 33, I have sought the one for whom my soul loves, then we see in this woman a pursuit of God in her life, and she will not let go. And that's hopeful and inspiring. And I think it leaves me with the question of, will we seek Will we pursue and then will we hold on? It's easy to be disillusioned and it's easy to say that the search is too hard and it's easy to let go. She will not let go. And in this then I hear these beautiful echoes of Eden. I teach this class called Garden to Garden. I think I'll offer it abbreviated version sometime soon for you all, now that we have some beautiful space coming our way. And many of you have taken it, but, but in it, what we do is we sort of look at the Bible from this 30,000-foot view above and try to make these beautiful connections. And what we see here at the very beginning, and those of you familiar with the story, 
God in the beginning says, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky of the livestock and all the wild animals. And so God created humankind in God's own image and in the image of God, he created them and male and female God created them. Genesis 1 27. And how it was meant to be was that when God looked and then in the second portion of the version of the creation story, God looks and he sees the Adam, the human being, and he says, it's not good for the Adam to be alone. So I will make a helper for the Adam. And the word there, we always translate helpmate. And we've heard like, like that's what the women are, right? We get to be the helpers. And then the men are the ones that get to be like the really in charge folk, right? With all the authority on them. But the word here in Hebrew is ezer konegdo. And the word ezer just means help. And it's most often used for God in the Bible. It's not about somebody who was coming to your beck and call and deciding that because I'm going to be an ezer konegdo, that that means I have to serve you tea or beer or whatever it is you want on any given Sunday, right? Instead, it is about a help a rescuer, a redeemer, somebody who comes. And the word connecto is translated equal, opposite facing. It's sort of like somebody reminded me like a, if you had two equal boards and then you lean them against each other and they would stand up because the pressure would be equal. This is what the Adam needed, the human needed. The Adam needed an Ezer connecto, somebody that could stand equal to, opposite facing and be that rescuer and help because it was not good for the Adam to be alone. It was not good for the human to be alone. That beautiful example is how it started, but then we remember the sneaky snake, don't we? And this is where patriarchy comes in. This is where misogyny comes in. This is when, as a result of that disobedience, God says to the woman, your desire, your teshukah, will be for him, but he will rule over you. So just in case people are trying to ever talk to you about what the biblical relationship is supposed to be like, make sure that you're a Genesis 1-2 person and not a Genesis 3 person. Because if you're a Christian, you believe in the curse-reversing death of Jesus, amen. And you don't have to live in Genesis 3 anymore and you get to try to get back to the garden. So here we have this horrible result where things are out of balance and they're out of balance with creation and they're out of balance with God and, and God can't find us in the garden. God's saying, where are you? And we're hiding and all of this is a mess, right? But here we have a glimpse of God's redemptive work in Song of Songs because that word, teshukah, that for desire, that only happens three times in the Bible. Genesis, where I just showed you, your desire will be for him. When Cain is trying to kill Abel and send desires to have him, and this third time, Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. When the woman says, when the woman says, I belong to my lover and his teshuka is for me. It's flipped. God is in the business of giving us glimpses of where God wants us to be. And so when we have these glimpses of the garden here in Song of Songs 2, all of these glimpses of this Edenic energy, we find this imagery, we find that this is the only place in the Bible where there is a dialogue of love, where it's actual love. And indeed, in this respect, the Song of Songs is unparalleled in the whole literature of the ancient Near East, as far as we know. And if this unique dialogue between God and Israel is just an ancient rabbinical invention, then we must also accept the sad fact that there is at the heart of the Bible a cosmic loneliness that finds no relief. From Dr. Ellen Davis. 
God, I think, has in part in this Song of Songs the full permission to just enjoy human intimacy with that faithful partner in your life and enjoy the beauty and the love of being in love and being with one another and having all of the good things in that in your life and having it be equal and mutual and respectful. All of the goodness of that. It's not just permission, but it's celebrated. And also we have God giving us a picture of things being set to right. A taste of the garden. A taste of what it is to, to pursue God and then to find God and to not let go. And a taste of what that mutuality and reciprocity looks like in human relationship as well. Now, unfortunately, though, as the Bible is wont to do, there's not a happy ending necessarily guaranteed. The book ends with still the pursuit of these two. We don't have it all sewn up very nicely. It's beautiful, but the song ends with the dream, the longing of intimacy and connection that I think all humans are programmed to have, but it's not yet wholly satisfied. And in fact, if we're honest, happy and tidy endings are very rare in the Bible. Most stories and parables leave us in the middle of a situation with a question to wrestle The author invites us into this space, into this garden of Song of Songs, into the space of yearning for intimacy and for healing and for Eden. This cultivation of real intimacy with God, with one another, with the creation, with the garden, is the greatest social and spiritual challenge of our time. Wasn't this the high cost of COVID, hasn't it been? The loss of connection the loss of just spaces where we meet one another and we can see with one another and sit with one another. Those liminal spaces. I mean, I think maybe if we were lucky over the last few years, we've had the opportunity to hunker down with a very small group and get to know that small group very well. But you know what I've missed? I've missed the other (laughs) groups. I've missed those threshold spaces where you can just walk through and and meet somebody you haven't met before, have a meaningful conversation in those moments. And I think the song evokes a healed relationship between humanity and the natural world, and it's a lush garden bursting with spring in all of the ways of that, how we relate with one another, how we relate with our partners, how we relate in our community, how we relate in all of this. In our world, Song of Psalms gives us a perpetual pursuit of love, a perpetual pursuit of God. And we find in the song that it's a journey, not a destination. Because I think what we'll also all admit is that just like we've had those times of very hot, passionate, wonderful love and connection with another human being, we've also had times when it's been broken and painful. And the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And those moments are so hard that you wish oftentimes that you'd never had the intimacy because the loss of it or the brokenness of it is so great. It's almost too much to bear. And then we'll think, well, then I guess this is my destination. I guess 
I'm just doomed to be alone, or I'm just doomed to be isolated, or I'm just doomed to have this be my new destination, or I'm just doomed to not have a close, constant relationship with Jesus. I don't feel it anymore, therefore maybe it was never true, and I don't know what to do anymore. But the book, Song of Songs, is standing here to tell you, you don't get to give up on the pursuit. Because it's not a destination, it's a journey. And you and I get to continue to pursue and seek after what it is that makes us feel fully human and alive and made in the image and likeness of God. So if you're in that human relationship that's floundering and frustrated, guess what? You don't have to stay there. We get to change it. We get to continue to pursue it. We get to ask God what God has for us today, and we get to see something different happen. And if you're in that relationship with Jesus today where it feels dead or stale, you don't have to stay there. You get to pursue him. You get to ask for help. You get to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to fall down on you and give you this intimate, personal relationship that you so long for with the creator of the universe who loves us and knows us. My favorite portion of Song of Songs is this. And I read this passage at funerals often. As this is the hope, the glimpse of hope that I see in this book. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For the winter is past, and the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, and the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs and the vines are in blossom and they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. And I, every time I read that passage, I hear Jesus. Arise, my love, my lovely one, come with me. So my hope today, Spark, is that in all of our relationships with God, with one another, with creation, that we would be pursuing intimacy, that we would pursue connection, and that we would hear God inviting us, calling us, and longing to be found. This is the wisdom found in this book. We get to keep pursuing this for the sake of one another and for the sake of ourselves and for the sake of our relationship with Christ. And in this beautiful, intimate moment, we get to dine at a table with our king. We get to all be invited with the people we love to come and to find Christ and healing and hope. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.